Hello and welcome to From Russia with News, a weekly news podcast brought to you by the Moscow Times. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Millions of citizens of Russia are united by the Olympic dream. I view the Russians as a far greater challenge that we have. President Putin, uh, he just said it's not Russia. A unique country, not bad, not bad at all. I'm your host, Jake Cordell, a reporter in our Moscow newsroom. This week on the program, President Vladimir Putin makes his move, laying down the foundations to potentially stay in power until 2036. It will almost certainly create some anxiety among people who saw new opportunities for themselves in a a post-Putin system. But by the same token, I think there were a lot of people who saw a post-Putin system as one in which they stood to lose some power and influence. Professor Sam Green, director of the Russia Institute at King's College London, is on the line to break down what happened in a frantic day in Moscow and what happens next. And later, a turbulent week for the economy as Russia pulls out of an oil alliance with Saudi Arabia and helps send financial markets around the world into a tailspin. This year was meant to be the year when Russia could really increase spending and put money back to improve living standards, for example. That was meant to be a big Putin policy for this year. It seems like that that is the thing that will suffer the most. Russia economy and government editor at Bloomberg News, Natasha Doff, is in the studio to assess the impact of falling oil prices and whether Moscow can deal with the damage. In a televised statement to Russia's parliament, Vladimir Putin backed a constitutional shakeup which could see him remain president for another two full terms. The plans would mean Russia's cap of two six-year presidential terms would be reset when a batch of high-profile constitutional amendments come into force later this year. It would allow Putin to run for office again in 2024 and 2030, should he wish to. Putin, in effect, becomes a monarch. If we assume Putin will stay in power until 2036, he'll have been president for 36 years, if you count his four years as prime minister. Putin will have broken the Soviet record and will have been in power longer than Stalin. That was the BBC's Steve Rosenberg quoting one Russian political commentator on the bombshell announcement. To dig into the developments and look at what happens now, I'm very pleased to have Professor Sam Green, head of the Russia Institute at King's College London, on the line. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So it was certainly a dramatic day here in Moscow. Was it a surprise what happened? Um, well, I suppose that depends on um, what your point of view is, right? So for, for, from uh, some perspective, right, um, this, of course, was not a surprise in that I think that very few people expected sort of the post-2024 power arrangement not to involve uh, Putin one way or another. Um, It's a surprise, I think, the speed with which they moved in this direction, right? Um, So if you go back to Putin's address to the nation, right, when he talked about this constitutional reform in the first place, and he um, seemed to make it fairly clear uh, that uh, there would be term limits, that the term limits would affect him as well, and that we would see uh, some redistribution of power away from the presidency and towards the Duma. and in the ensuing weeks, we have seen a lot of those things walked back, right? So we see a constitutional reform that now, in fact, strengthens the presidency. Um, 
And um, we saw various statements and in other interviews that he gave about the importance of stability, and maybe the stability was more important than a rotation of power, and and uh, and also the importance of not having a divided power structure in the country. All of which sort of began to point in the direction of Putin staying on uh, in um, uh, in a role that, if not the presidency, then something very much uh, like it. Um, so it's not surprising that we've ended up where we are. I think it is slightly surprising that it has happened. Um, uh, this quickly. I would have expected him to maintain a bit more sort of constructive ambiguity, if you will, um, uh, until a much closer date to 2024. So, yeah, we saw all the kind of theatre around what role Putin may take. Do you think they were always kind of laying the groundwork for this solution or were they genuinely kind of considering a different fit after 2024? Um, look, it, what happens inside Putin's head and those of his advisors and around their tables really is not data that we can observe, right? So I'm reluctant to, to sort of speculate as to what their intentions may have been. But if we look at patterns of behavior over time, um, then you know, we know that um, Putin and his team like to keep people off balance, like to keep people guessing. And the constitutional reform and the whole conversation around it really seemed designed to um, produce a... Uh, multiplicity of of opportunities uh, and avenues and, and and just room for maneuverability, right? That um, the the system and he would have uh, as we approached twenty twenty four. And I I would have expected them to stick with that. Um, so uh, the the fact that they have. Um, uh, decided now, right, uh, really to to narrow that down and to tell us essentially, I think everybody now will be very surprised indeed if Putin is not again president after 2024, uh, suggests that they uh, felt the system itself was becoming maybe a bit too jittery and that the uncertainty was less productive than they had hoped. And is this why you think they decided to move now or were there other factors at play as well? Again, it's very hard to know. Uh, I mean, part of it, I think, comes down to the legislative process. It's, it's, it's a one-shot deal in terms of reforming the Constitution, and so you needed to get the legislation in place um, uh, now as they were moving through that uh, process. Um, uh, so that may have been, obviously, a big part of the calculation. Um, it may also be that some other issues, including uh, sort of global economic uh, issues around the sort of the economic fallout of, of OPEC+, plus, plus the, the whole coronavirus situation, uh, may have provided also a bit more demand for, um, for stability. Right, or for what they perceive to be stability anyway. And there's, of course, still a little bit of a process to go in this uh, in this rejig. Putin said he wouldn't oppose the amendments as long as Russia's constitutional court says they're OK. Is there any chance of that not happening? Um, there is almost no chance uh, that the constitutional court will block it. There's almost no chance that the public vote would block it. Right. So um, we've seen the constitutional court um, acquiesce to a lot of things that seem like they were in contravention of the constitution, going back to um, you know getting rid of, of of directly elected governors and um, a number of other significant changes to the the federal power structure, in particular in Russia. It's hard to see why all of a sudden this would uh, because a, be a cause a problem for them. And of course, Putin has kind of fiddled around with these term limits before when he did the switch with Medvedev. Um, and when that was announced, there was this kind of furious reaction from opposition and civil society figures. Are we seeing signs that the same could happen this time? 
I think we are seeing some dissatisfaction. We've seen that dissatisfaction, in fact, around um, the uh, constitutional reform in general. But of course, the opposition's dissatisfaction with with Putin is 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 baked in, right? What happened in 2011-2012 uh, was something of of an hour never moment, right? Um, because that announcement happened with on, in only a few months, first the Duma elections and then of the presidential elections, that provided um, both a target of anger, but also sort of a focused time period that really gave people in the opposition a sense of urgency and even gave people who were not in the opposition a sense of urgency, right? That that people who had simply imagined, you know, that that, that politics in Russia might have been moving in a different direction and were reasonably happy with him to get a presidency and all this talk about modernization and freedom is better than non-freedom and all of that, right? All of a sudden had a reason uh, to be uh, dissatisfied and, and they had a short period of time in which they needed to act on that dissatisfaction. Uh, in that respect, they seem to have learned a couple of lessons, right? Right. Um, so they are doing this and making this announcement well uh, in advance of any electoral process. Right. Uh, so, uh, you know, you're gonna come out and protest now over something that's that, that may or may not happen in four years time right, uh, is uh, is a less clear proposition. Um, it seems less urgent. Uh, and of course, by the time the elections do roll around, uh, people may have become somewhat um, uh, inured to it. But if, 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 if I look around, obviously, we don't have any opinion polling. Um, but, uh, but anecdotally, and I think if you follow social media and, and just commentary in general, I think you find that, that yes, there are some people um, who are now finding themselves in a political position that they did not expect to, uh, to be in. People who had, in fact, gotten behind this idea uh, that Putin was finally going to invest uh, his efforts in creating a rotation of power in Russia. Uh, any hopes that that might have engendered up Obviously, have been dashed. And did the opposition learn any lessons from 2011? Their ultimate failure to to stop what what they opposed happening. Are they going to do anything differently this time around? Oh uh, well, I think the opposition still probably looks at 2011, 2012 as as a success. It, it was uh, at least in terms of their ability to bring people out of the streets. It was quite successful. Um, I think they've learned lessons in the interim, right? So they've learned how to deal with uh, an increasingly repressive state apparatus. Uh, they've learned how to mobilize people even in the face of um, uh, police action uh, and uh, in, in the face of refusals to allow uh, protests. They've learned how to um, uh, mobilize even when the majority of opposition leaders are, are temporarily in, in, in prison. Right? Um, so they've, they've built capacity, they've built networks. Um, but you know, the um, the the real issue for them, right, is is a numbers issue, right? The problem from the opposition's point of view is not that you know a lot of people in Russia think that the country is well governed. It's that most people in Russia, you know, understand that there's a, a problem with the quality of governance, but don't think that bringing the opposition to power would make any real difference. Uh, and so. Um, what they need, frankly, are more situations like this, where they need more stories um, coming out of the system that uh, make it clearer to people what the difference is between what the opposition are offering and what the Kremlin is offering. And do you think this kind of switch is going to bring the stability that Putin hopes for? Or are there maybe now kind of people on the inside who were thinking 2024 may be my chance and they're now a little bit put back by this announcement? Um, well, it will almost certainly create some um, uh, anxiety among people who saw new opportunities for themselves um, in a, a post-Putin system. Um, 
But by the same token, I think there were a lot of people who saw a post-Putin system in, as one in which they stood to, to lose some power and influence. Uh, and so probably, uh, you know, again, this is this is a rough calculation, but probably um, that sort of new anxiety and, and, and new uh, sort of worry among some people is balanced out by by the others who, who now can can breathe a bit easier. I think what this does fundamentally is it simply takes the 2024 issue off the table. Right. So people no longer need to focus on that as a crisis point, um, they can maybe begin to think about uh, a longer term future um, and, and make different kinds of decisions. But of course, that means they have to think about a longer term future that looks very much like today. So if people were thinking that, you know, in four years time, the system might begin to change, that you might be able to unblock uh, some structural reform, uh, that um, no longer looks like it's the case. Thank you very much for joining us on the show today. Thank you. Last week, Russia rejected a proposal from Saudi Arabia to cut oil production in response to the economic fallout of the coronavirus, kicking off an oil price war and sending global energy prices tumbling. I told you many years ago, if you stick around long enough, you'll see everything in markets and the combination actually of the coronavirus and what happened with oil over the week. I mean, that is that's a big one two punch. Legendary investor Warren Buffett there with his take on one of the worst weeks in the global stock market's history. Low oil prices are generally bad news for the Russian economy, and the ruble quickly fell back against the dollar. But Moscow insists it has enough in the tank to withstand the costs of cheap fuel, and that it can minimise the economic costs. In the studio to weigh up those claims, Natasha Doff, Economy and Government Editor at Bloomberg News here in Moscow. Thanks for coming in today, Natasha. Thanks for having me. So we've seen a lot of global turmoil this week. Can you explain what's gone on in the Russian economy? Um, yeah, it's been it's been a very busy week. Basically, what happened was Friday uh, there was a big a big issue in the in the oil market. So um, because of coronavirus, uh, oil demand, global oil demand has has fallen a lot, and the Saudi and Saudi Arabia wanted to cut production, and uh, Russia decided to push back really hard against that, refused to cut production, and because of that. Global oil prices crashed and the ruble has also fallen. So it's down about, I think, about 14% this week so far at the moment. Can you just explain a little bit why are oil prices so important for the Russian economy? Why do they have such a big effect on things here in Russia? So the Russian budget uh, relies quite heavily on oil and so basically energy exports, it's just the main it's the main export from Russia. So the bulk of the money that comes into the Russian budget will come from the oil, so from, from taxation on the, the oil industry. It's less dependent than it was. So back in 2014, it was more heavily dependent. They needed oil prices to be a lot higher just to break even. Now, um, you know, they've since 2014, I, I think that really shocked them and they've, they've kind of sorted themselves out a lot more. So Russia is now less dependent on oil than, say, Saudi Arabia, which puts them in a really good position, good negotiating position. But oil and gas are still still the big, the big contributor to the budget. And uh, falling oil prices, a weak ruble, this is a bit of a familiar story for Russia, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, we've been here before. I think it was uh, the, the CEO of Lukoil said the other day that this is just normal for us. We've seen oil price volatility so much in the last few decades that it's not a big deal. Um, the, the big difference now, so yeah, there, there are lots of comparisons with 2015 when oil prices collapsed and the ruble revalued. So it's quite easy to draw a comparison with that. The, the big difference is that uh, since 2014, Russia has really sorted out its finances. It has unpegged the currency, which means it just lets it float freely, which is really good for the Russian budget because it means that Russia gets more rubles from all of the oil that it sells. And they've built up 
much bigger reserves. Uh, so they're in a much better position than they were five years ago. Yeah, that's true. The Russian government does kind of talk this big game about how strong its finances are now. But uh, other economists say that with a free-floating currency, it's going to be Russian consumers that maybe take the hit. Yeah, I think that's uh, definitely true. And it's, I mean, it's what we've seen in the last five years. So they've had this huge austerity program, which is basically has allowed them to be in this position now where they can be the main player in the oil market. But it it means that all of the money is kind of going into reserves and it's not really filtering down to the, the people. It's important to mention that this year was meant to be the year when Russia can really increase spending and put money back to improve living standards, for example. That was meant to be a big Putin policy for this year. It seems like that that is the thing that will suffer the most because inevitably there will just be less money. I mean, they're, they're still in quite good position because they didn't spend much last year. They had, they've had surpluses for the past two years. So there is a lot money to spend. It's just how much they'll be able to spend is is probably more limited. So how has the government responded in this initial period of of turmoil? So they have started selling foreign currency to prop up the ruble and they kind of brought that forward so that would have been an automatic thing anyway just because of where the ruble fell to but they brought that forward a little bit. That's basically all they've done. The finance ministry has said that they are very resilient, that even with oil prices at $25 a barrel, they will still be fine, which is, is true in a way. I mean, he's, they said that they could survive for a decade with oil at $25 a barrel, which I think is a bit of an exaggeration, but probably they could survive. It just wouldn't be very pleasant. Yeah, but would the Russian government be prepared to spend all these reserves? They've spent five years of austerity building up on this oil price war? Is this really what they were saving for? Yeah, so I don't think they would have to spend it because, so back in 2014, they had a pegged currency. So they had to spend the the reserve money just to prop up the ruble and they lost billions just doing that. This time around, they don't need to do that. They can just let the ruble weaken, which they probably want to do. I mean, there isn't, the main problem with that would be higher inflation, but it's not really an issue at the moment because inflation's fallen so low. So yeah, so if, if they wanted to spend more just to try and make the economy grow, then that would be that would involve spending more reserve money. Uh, they have quite strict limits on how much they can actually spend, though. So it's, it would be more of a question of denting investor confidence if they started really seriously dipping into those funds, which in the past they've been quite reluctant to do. And how have investors uh, responded to this, or what's the mood on the international finance markets towards Russia at the moment? It's kind of a tricky one because when there is this kind of global sell-off, which is not just connected to oil, it's also coronavirus, investors will just pull all of their money out of emerging markets because it's the riskiest side of the of the market. So we've had a massive uh, sell-off from Russian assets. The stock market, uh, I think, went into a bear market today, which means it's fallen um, 20% from a certain level. The ruble has, as I said, has fallen about 14% this week. Bonds have also sold off. And Russia has been probably one of the hardest hit among emerging markets. Uh, it's hard to say at the moment how much of that is due to investors losing confidence in like the Russian fundamental story and how much is just knee-jerk selling off everything that is risky. And it's, it's still very early days, but are there any signs about how Russian consumers are responding to the devaluation of the ruble? That's a good question. I don't think we've had anything yet. I think it's a slightly unusual situation because usually consumers, the first place they would be hit is things like travel to Europe. And at the moment, because of coronavirus, nobody is traveling. So in a way, it's quite, <laughs> it's quite a good situation. Inflation was also really low. So in 2014, when the ruble crashed, inflation shot up. And that's where uh, consumers were really hurt. At the moment, we've actually got the opposite problem where inflation is, was getting too low. So I don't think we're going to see a follow through into inflation for quite a while. Like it would have to, the, the ruble would have to be really falling for a long time for that to be an issue. So 
no immediate impact. And the the wider issue here that you mentioned is this disagreement with with Saudi Arabia or the breakdown of this deal to kind of limit oil production. Um, do you think there's any possibility that Russia and Saudi Arabia could go back to the negotiating table and strike a new deal? Yeah, um, the, the Russians have been talking a little bit about that. They said that they're they're open to negotiations. Uh, I think it depends a lot on the motivation behind this move from Russia to push back against OPEC and basically, you know, dissolve the group um, because it was quite a, it was quite a bold move, and I don't think people fully understand why they're doing that. You know, they were taking this opportunity to try and undermine the U.S. shale producers at a time when they were already quite weakened from the coronavirus, um, and if that's the case. I don't see them wanting to make a deal with Saudi anytime soon. Like they, they seem to be in a pretty good spot if, that, if that's what they're trying to achieve. If I can ask you to do a bit of crystal ball gazing, what happens next for the Russian economy? So nothing really happens in the near term. I think they, they, they're okay for the time being, but they're not going to come against any big issues. We've got a rate decision, interest rate decision later this month. Central Bank has been cutting rates for like almost a year now. I think we're going to see a pause. I mean, that seems to be what economists are saying at the moment. Um, but that's not, it's not a huge deal. I think the question is, how long does this last? And are oil prices, have they reached a new normal level? Like is below, is around 30 the new normal? It could get lower. The central bank, they had a kind of risk scenario report that they did about six months ago where they said that $25 a barrel oil would send Russia into recession. So uh, at that time, obviously, that was like a really extreme scenario. No, it doesn't maybe look so crazy. I think the other important thing to note, though, is that it's kind of all in Russia's control. Like, they caused this. So... If they really want to sort things out, they probably can. And then there's the question of oil longer, much longer term. I think they're going to come across issues, you know, the next 25, 30 years, just because oil demand is going to fall naturally. But that's that's a much longer term uh, question. Yeah, and talking about sorting things out this week, we heard earlier in the show about how Putin has laid down his plans to maybe stay in power after 2024. The timing of it is uh, has raised questions, shall we say. Is, is there any link between what's going on in the financial markets and this kind of political development here? Yeah, it's a really good question and one we've we've been asking a lot at the moment. Um, and it's very hard to say. I mean, I, I don't think anyone really knows what what's going through Putin's head. Uh, the, the timing is definitely is definitely interesting, and it, I think it's possible that he, it was a tactical. You know, maybe it was something he was planning to do anyway, and it, he went for it because there's so much turmoil. It's just a good it's a good moment tactically, or it could be the other way around. It's really hard to say. Um, but yeah, it, it seems. To, I think a lot of people were taken by surprise by. Both for both moves, like some of the smaller oil companies, um, like Luca, that they they were very shocked. It seems from the decision to kind of abandon OPEC. So it's possible there was something going on behind the scenes, but we don't know that. That's really interesting. Thank you for coming in today, Natasha. Thank you for having me. And that's it for this week on From Russia with News. Thanks for tuning in, and if you get a chance, please do rate the show on your favorite podcast app. We'd love to hear what you think, so don't hesitate to get in touch with us on Facebook or Twitter, at Moscow Times, to tell us what you think and let us know if there are topics you'd like us to explore in future episodes. Head over to the Moscow Times website for more on Putin's constitutional maneuvers, the Russian economy, and the latest politics, business, art, and culture. While you're there, you won't be able to miss our very large, very bright crowdfunding campaign. And if you like this podcast or our other free and independent reporting from Russia, please consider throwing some spare change our way. I'm your host, Jake Cordell. Our producer was Pyotr Sauer. We look forward to joining you next week with more news from Russia.